I can think of a, a number of occasions in my life where I worried excessively, and in most of these occasions, I think it was understandable. In other words, it made sense why I was worried. Uh, I think all of us have situations where it, it just makes sense why we would worry. However, I've discovered over the years that almost never do the worries come to pass. Almost never is the thing I'm worrying about something that actually happens, and so in a sense, I think I worry for nothing. The problem with worrying is that it adds to the suffering, but it does not add to the solution. And I think this is what Jesus was getting at in Matthew 6, 27, when he said these words, can any of you add a single cubit to his height by worrying, a cubit was a measurement of about 18 inches. He's saying, can any of you add a single cubit, and I would say even a single inch to your height through worrying? I mean, I realize that we can add to our height by putting on some shoes with tall heels, but worrying won't add anything to it. Another way this can be translated, by the way, is can anyone add one moment to his lifespan? And the answer is no. Worrying does not accomplish anything. When I was in my 20s, I began to worry that maybe I was going bald. Now, what did, what did the worry do for me? If anything, worry would have accelerated the process. Today, we're continuing our series titled No Worries. And this idea of worry in, in our English language comes from an old English word that means to choke or to strangle. And that's what it's like when we worry. It doesn't do us any good. The image that comes to my mind are the times that I've gone scuba diving, and there have been a few occasions where I went scuba diving, and while I was under the water, 40 or 80 feet, something caused me to panic, and suddenly it was like I could hardly breathe. I remember this one occasion, for example, where I saw two large sharks in the distance. And we'd been told that the sharks in this area near Cozumel, Mexico, were were harmless, most of them were nurse sharks and they were small, they were actually kind of cute. But the two sharks I saw when we were down about 80 feet were absolutely massive and I know things look bigger in the water. But I looked over at the dive master and I got his attention and I pointed to the two sharks and the expression on his face was just priceless. I mean, we weren't supposed to be afraid but when I saw how big his eyes got, and when I saw the panic in his face, I thought, I think I need to be afraid if this guy's afraid. He signaled for us to back away slowly. But in times like that, when you're scuba diving, suddenly you find that it's just having trouble breathing and you panic a little bit and that's exactly what it feels like. Worry kind of chokes us. And so the last few weeks, we've been looking at various stories out there in the Bible and making a single point which, with each story. And so the first story we looked at was the story of Jacob. And I made the point that we need to stand firmly on God's promises. Jacob was returning home after he'd been gone for 20 years. The last time he had seen his brother, his brother had threatened to kill him. And so it was understandable why he was afraid. As he got close to home though, there's a prayer that he prayed and it's a wonderful prayer. His prayer was along the lines of God, you said to go home and you said if I did, you would be with me. You said you'd bless me, you would prosper me. You said that my descendants would be like the sand of the sea. And basically Jacob was claiming the promises of God and this is a tremendous resource we have. There are so many promises in the Bible. 
I remember years ago, I used to struggle with my own faith and whether or not I really was a Christian. Am I really saved? Am I really going to heaven? And, and sometimes I would struggle with that, but then I would, I would go to this promise in John 3, 16. And it became my prayer. It's like, God, you said that you sent your own son into this world and whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. And my prayer began this way, Lord, I just want to claim this promise. You've, you've given your word about this, that if I put my trust in your son, I'll have eternal life. I'm standing firmly on that promise. Then last week, we looked at another story, the story of Elijah, and I made the point we won't have to worry about the future if we remember how God has taken care of us in the past. Elijah was someone who saw God work in so many ways. He saw God provide for him. He saw how God protected him and how God proved his power. And yet, when his life was threatened by the wife of the king of Israel, I don't see him praying and I don't see him remembering. And I don't think he would have worried if he would have just stopped to reflect on the ways in which God had taken care of him. God had provided for him in supernatural ways. God had protected him in other circumstances and God had proven his power, lightning coming down from heaven. And so Elijah knew who this God was and yet when he was faced with this threat, he didn't trust God if he would only have remembered. Well, today I wanna to focus on another key for overcoming worry and it's summarized in Hebrews 13 verses five and six. When we read your life should be free from the love of money. Be satisfied with what you have, for he himself has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Now that's the key point here. I will never leave you or forsake you. Therefore we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? The author of Hebrews here was quoting from Moses in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy 31 and verse six. Moses was with the people of Israel as they were getting ready to enter the promised land. And he was saying, even though you're afraid, God will go with you. You don't have to be afraid. In Moses' mind, I'm sure he was reminded of the fact that the parents of these young people that were going into the promised land had not trusted God. When God said, you go into the promised land, they were afraid and they didn't trust God. And therefore, they all died in the wilderness. And now it was time for their children to enter the promised land. And this is the promise he gave them in Deuteronomy 31.6. Be strong and courageous. Don't be terrified or afraid of them. For it is the Lord your God who goes with you and he will not leave you or forsake you. He won't abandon you. And so what I hope we walk away with here today is this, that we don't need to be afraid because Jesus is with us. And I might even add this phrase, he's for us. We do not need to be afraid because Jesus is with us, he is for us, and his presence with us makes all the difference in the world. Now today I wanna to look at a story that illustrates this, a story from the New Testament involving Jesus and his disciples. Let me set the context of the story. Jesus was teaching a large crowd, but he was actually teaching from a boat. They were at the edge of the Sea of Galilee and there were so many people gathered there that Jesus actually climbed in a boat and could have a little distance between himself and the crowd and he began to teach them and he taught them for many hours. That evening when he was done teaching though, he said to the disciples, let's go across the, the Sea of Galilee. 
And that's where I want to pick up this story here, beginning in Mark chapter 4 and verse 35. We'll be reading Mark 4, 35 to 41. <clears throat> well, we read, on that day when evening had come, he told them, let's cross over to the other side of the sea. So they left the crowd and took him along since he was already in the boat. And other boats were with him. Let me just stop for a moment. But Mark is the only one that includes this interesting detail that it wasn't just Jesus with the disciples. There were probably several boats there, and they were all crossing the Sea of Galilee. Picking up the story in verse 37. A fierce windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking over the boat so that the boat was already being swamped. But he was in the stern sleeping on the cushion. So they woke him up and said to him, teacher, don't you care that we're going to die? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the sea, silence, be still. The wind ceased, and there was a great calm. Then he said to them, why are you fearful? Do you still have no faith? And they were terrified and asked one another, who then is this? Even the wind and the sea obey him. I love this story. Jesus was obviously tired from a long day of teaching. It could be very draining. And so they climb in a boat, and, and as they're going across the Sea of Galilee, suddenly there's this, this huge storm, a fierce windstorm. And the waves were so large that the boat was in danger of sinking as the water was coming in. Now, the Sea of Galilee is really more a lake than a sea. It's not really a sea. It's a large lake, but it's known for its sudden squalls. Uh, several years ago on my first trip to Israel, we were in the town of Tiberias, and we were going to take a boat ride that day on the Sea of Galilee, on this lake. And that morning, we all gathered together, and as we were standing there, the leader of our group said, we can't, we can't go on a boat ride today. We'll have to go tomorrow. And we wondered why, because everything looked perfect and he said, the conditions are ripe for a big storm. It wouldn't be safe to do it. And so from outward appearances, you wouldn't know that there was going to be a storm, but it was a very dangerous storm. <clears throat> the word translated fierce windstorm here corresponds with a Hebrew word in the Old Testament in Job 38.1 that's used or translated a whirlwind or a hurricane. And suddenly you get a sense of just how bad this storm was. This was no small storm. This was a squall. The guys that were in the boats thought they were going to die. And these were seasoned fishermen's, fishermen. <clears throat> now, with all the stories we've looked at so far, one of the points that I've made is that it was understandable that they were afraid. It was understandable that they worried. And I don't want to minimize that because when we looked at the story of Jacob, I understand why he was afraid. His brother was trying to kill him. And I understand why Elijah was afraid because the wife of the king had threatened to kill him and she had already killed the prophets and priests in Israel. Most of them she had put to death and so it wasn't some idle threat. And what these guys were facing was very real as well. A website called ChristianAnswers.net explains why there are storms on the Sea of Galilee. It goes this way. <clears throat> it writes, the Sea of Galilee lies 200, I'm sorry, 680 feet below sea level. It is bounded by hills, especially on the east side, where they reach 2,000 feet high. These heights are a source of cool, dry air. 
In contrast, directly around the sea, the climate is semi-tropical with warm, moist air. The large difference in height between the surrounding land and the sea causes large temperature and pressure changes. This results in strong winds dropping to the sea, funneling through the hills. When the contrasting air masses meet, a storm can arise quickly and without warning. Small boats caught out on the sea are in immediate danger. Any of us would have been afraid under these circumstances. But the disciples forgot something here. Jesus was in the boat. We don't need to be afraid if Jesus is with us. We don't need to be afraid. What was going to happen to them if Jesus was in the boat? This particular boat, by the way, that they were in was larger than I think sometimes we imagine. An author by the name of Walkman wrote in the book called The Galilee Boat about a a boat that was discovered in 1986 in the mud on the northeast shore of the Sea of Galilee. And this boat dates around the time or within the window of time that the disciples would have been around. In fact, it's not impossible that this was the boat they were in. Let me read, though, the description of the boat that they discovered on the Sea of Galilee in the mud. The boat was 26 and a half feet long, seven and a half feet wide, and four and a half feet high. Carbon-14 technology dates the the boat between 120 B.C. and A.D. 40. Of course, this took place about A.D. 30. Both fore and aft sections of the boat appear to have been covered with a deck providing space on which to sit or lie. The boat was propelled by four rowers, two per side, and has a total capacity of about 15 persons. And so this this was a fairly large boat that they were in, and yet they were in danger. Let's read verses 37 and 38 again, going back to Mark chapter 4. A fierce windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking over the boat, so that the boat was already being swamped. But he was in the stern, sleeping on the cushion, so they woke him up and said, teacher, don't you care that we are going to die? One of the reasons that I'm convinced that the Bible's the Word of God, and I've mentioned this before, is just how realistic the stories are. These disciples are acting exactly the way that I would expect them to act. In fact, as I read what they said here, I believe that they were mad at Jesus. I mean, they're looking at Jesus sleeping in the boat in the midst of this horrible storm, and it's like, how could you possibly be sleeping at a time like this? And they ask him, "Don't, don't you love us? And part of the issue here was that they did not understand who Jesus was, as we'll see in a minute here. But I understand, again, what they were feeling. They said, you know, don't you love us? You know, and I think we've felt this at times, haven't we, through the things that we've faced? Haven't we wondered, God, are you aware of what I'm going through? Do you care what I'm going through? God, do you love me as we face various things? I think we wonder that, and that's exactly what the disciples were thinking. The irony of the story to me is this, Jesus cared for them more than anyone ever had. I mean, Jesus loved them even more than their mothers did. This is the kind of love that Christ have, and so to ask Jesus, do you care? No one has ever cared more. And I want us to understand that Jesus cares for us as well. 
The famous painter Rembrandt captured the spirit of this story through a painting titled The Storm on the Sea of Galilee. I, I love the painting. It's a painting that's so realistic, and it includes even a guy that's throwing up at the end of the boat, if you look carefully. And this is kind of what it would have been like for them, and it was, again, very dangerous. But let's see what Jesus did, beginning in verse 39. We read, he got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the sea, silence, be still. The wind ceased, and there was a great calm. Then he said to them, why are you fearful? Do you still have no faith? This, of course, is the issue. When it comes to worry in our lives, it's really an issue of faith. Do we trust God? Do we trust that our God is with us? Do we trust that our God is for us? This is why Paul wrote, be anxious for nothing in Philippians 4, 6. Don't be anxious about anything, he said, but in everything with prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And his peace that surpasses all comprehension will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Don't be anxious about a single thing because we have a God who is with us and a God who cares for us. And so Jesus gets up and he, he calms the storm. He says, be quiet. He rebukes the wind, it says. <clears throat> this is, again, one of these scenes I hope I can see when we get to heaven. I, I am really hoping that when we get to heaven, we get to play some of these stories, some of these scenes that we could just pop in on the big screen. I'd love to see the scene, for example, where God's creating everything. But I'd really love to see the expression on the face of these guys when when Jesus rebuked the wind and the, and the storm and everything just became still. The word rebuked, by the way, when it says he rebuked the wind, <clears throat> is a very interesting word because the way it's used elsewhere in the Gospels most of the time is when he's casting out demons. That's the word that's used here. He rebuked the demons. He rebuked the wind. And many scholars believe that perhaps Satan was behind this particular storm. Because if you think of that quote in Job where it talked about the same windstorm, you remember that Satan caused the storm or the tornado that caused his children to lose their lives. And it's possible that the devil was behind this. It might have been demonic in origin. He rebuked the wind like he would a demon. And then he said to the water, be still, but literally that should be translated, be muzzled. It's kind of like a monster that should be silenced. You be quiet, you be silenced. And then he says to his disciples, why are you so fearful? The Greek word that's used here for fearful refers to a cowardly fear. He's really asking them, why are you being such cowards? Do you still have no faith? And I have to wonder sometimes, as God looks at my life or our lives, does he ask the same question, do you still have no faith? Everything became quiet as Jesus spoke to the wave and the wind. And then let's read verse 41 again. <clears throat> it says, and they were terrified and asked one another, who then is this, even the wind and the sea obey him? The word terrified here is a different Greek word than was used earlier. It's a word that refers to awe or wonder. It means they were filled with a great fear. It's like they had seen God do something so miraculous it took their breath away. And they're just standing there and they're asking the question, <clears throat> exactly who is this? 
And I think this is the question. Uh, this is the question that matters, the most important question we can ask. Exactly who was this Jesus? Who is this Jesus? He's the Son of God and God the Son. And he's one who loves to save people. I'm convinced that Jesus loves to save people, not only their soul, not just in a spiritual sense, but he loves to save us in a, a physical sense as well. He loves to deliver us. And he was right there in the boat with them, the Son of God and God the Son. This is why they should not have been afraid. They had no reason to be afraid, but I think they didn't understand who he was. So practically, what should we do about this? Well, I think there's some of us that are perhaps watching this that don't know where we stand with God, and, and maybe you don't know if you have a relationship with Jesus Christ. You don't know if your sins are forgiven. You don't know if you were to die, if you'd go to heaven or not. And this for you would be the first question I would ask, and a, a challenge I would make to you is to put your trust in Jesus to be your savior, because that's the starting point. The problem that all of us have when it comes to our relationship with God is a little thing called sin. The word sin just means to miss the mark. It's like there's a gap between us and our creator. Sin is, is what keeps us from a relationship with God. Sin is the thing that disqualifies us from going to heaven. Heaven's a perfect place. We're not perfect people. And so if something doesn't happen to us, if we don't experience forgiveness, if our sins are not taken away, we won't be qualified to go to heaven. The problem is we can't fix this problem. There's nothing we can do to clean ourselves up enough to earn eternal life. Even if this day we said, I don't want to sin anymore, we, un we all know that tomorrow we will. We can't forget our past. We can't stop sinning in the future. The solution lies outside of ourselves. And this is why Jesus came into this world. God sent his own son into this world to die in our place and for the things that we've done wrong. In a sense, God executed his own son for the sins you and I have committed because the justice of God required that every sin have its just penalty. This is what the justice of God requires, that every single sin have a just penalty. But Jesus took upon himself all the sin of the world. He died in our place and for our sin. And he died and was buried, but three days later he rose again from the dead, and this demonstrates that the payment was accepted by God. And so we have this tremendous promise from God throughout the New Testament that if we'll put our trust in Jesus Christ to be our Savior, we'll receive the free gift of eternal life. God so loved the world, he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. Whoever puts their trust in him, and so I just wanna encourage you, to come to this point where you say, you know, I, I, must, I know God, I sin, and I can't fix it. I need a savior, I, I need a deliverer, and today I reach out to Jesus to be my savior. Today I put my trust in him. I want his death and resurrection to count for me. I receive him today. <clears throat> and why this matters is that when we put our trust in Jesus Christ to be our savior, the spirit of Christ comes to live within us. And suddenly, Christ is always with us. He says, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Now, if you're already a believer here today, we have tremendous promises that, that demonstrate to us that God won't ever leave us. For example, in Romans 8.31, the Apostle Paul raised this question. What then can we say to these things? If God is for us, who's against us? 
He was making the point, our God is for us. If God is for us, who could possibly be against us? Then skipping to verse 35, he asked this question, who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or anguish or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, can any of these things separate us from the love of Christ, the love that Christ has toward us? He answers the question in verse 38. For I am persuaded that not even death or life, angels or rulers, things present or things to come, hostile powers, height or depth, or any other created thing will have the power to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. There's absolutely nothing that can separate us from God's love for us and Jesus Christ's love for us. And so we do not need to be afraid because as believers in Christ, Jesus is with us and he's also for us. Now practically, What should we do about this? Well, I want to encourage you to take these steps. First of all, I want to encourage you to apply the points I've made the last couple of weeks. I want to encourage you and point you to the pages of the Bible where there are all these promises. You claim those promises. You stand on those promises. That will help you. And then I encourage you to remember the ways in which God has protected you in the past and he's provided for you in the past, ways in which he's proved himself to you in the past. And then I also want to encourage you to reach out to other believers to help you in your relationship with Jesus because other believers will help remind us that Jesus is with us. In the book of Hebrews, we read that we're not to forsake our own assembling together, but we're to encourage one another day after day as we see the day drawing near. The word encourage means to instill courage and so other believers can also help us. And finally, just to remember what I just talked about here today, to remember that Christ is with us and for us. And one of the best ways we can do that is to spend time in prayer. And that's what I'd like to talk about next week, the role that prayer plays when we tend to worry. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you're with us. We thank you that you are for us. We thank you that you care about us. Thank you that you will not forsake us. You will not abandon us. Thank you for your amazing love that you've demonstrated toward us. And we ask you, Lord, that you remind us in the days ahead to trust in you and to believe in you so that we will not worry, that we will not need to be afraid. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.